welcome to Pros Are the Days. Thank you for joining me for the fifth installment of The Awakening by Kate Chopin. If you're reading along at home, today's episode encompasses chapters 18 through 22. Do you have your tea? Today I just have water. Great, let's jump back in. Would be next to valueless that she herself had not alone decided, but determined, but she sought the words of praise and encouragement. 18. The following morning, Mr. Pontellier, upon leaving for his office, asked Edna if she would not meet him in town in order to look at some new fixtures for the library. I hardly think we need new fixtures, Léonce. Don't let us get anything new. You are too extravagant. I don't believe you ever think of saving or putting by. The way to become rich is to make money, my dear Edna, not to save it, he said. He regretted that she did not feel inclined to go with him and select new fixtures. He kissed her goodbye and told her she was not looking well and must take care of herself. She was unusually pale and very quiet. She stood on the front veranda as he quitted the house and absently picked a few sprays of jasmine that grew upon a trellis nearby. She inhaled the odor of the blossoms and thrust them into the bosom of her white morning gown. The boys were dragging along the banquet a small express wagon, which they had filled with blocks and sticks. The quadroon was following them with little quick steps, having assumed a fictitious animation and alacrity for the occasion. A fruit vendor was crying his wares in the street. Edna looked straight before her with a self-absorbed expression upon her face. She felt no interest in anything about her. The street, the children, the fruit vendor, the flowers growing there under her eyes, were all part and parcel of an alien world which had suddenly become antagonistic. She went back into the house. She had thought of speaking to the cook concerning her blunders of the previous night, but Mr. Pontellier had saved her that disagreeable mission for which she was so poorly fitted. Mr. Pontellier's arguments were usually convincing with those whom he employed. He left home feeling quite sure that he and Edna would sit down that evening, and possibly a few subsequent evenings, to a dinner deserving of the name. Edna spent an hour or two in looking over some of her old sketches. She could see their shortcomings and defects, which were glaring in her eyes. She tried to work a little, but found she was not in the humor. Finally, she gathered together a few of the sketches, those which she considered the least discreditable, and she carried them with her when, a little later, she dressed and left the house. She looked handsome and distinguished in her street gown. The tan of the seashore had left her face, and her forehead was smooth, white, and polished beneath her heavy yellow-brown hair. There were a few freckles on her face and a small, dark mole near the underlip and one on the temple, half hidden in her hair. As Edna walked along the street, she was thinking of Robert. She was still under the spell of her infatuation. She had tried to forget him, realizing the inutility of remembering, but the thought of him was like an obsession, ever pressing itself upon her. It was not that she dwelt upon details of their acquaintance or recalled in any special or peculiar way his personality. It was his being, his existence, which dominated her thought fading sometimes as if it would melt into the mist of the forgotten, reviving again with an intensity which filled her with an incomprehensible longing. Edna was on her way to Madame Ratignolle's. Their intimacy, begun at Grand Isle, had not declined, and they had seen each other with some frequency since their return to the city. The Ratignolles lived at no great distance from Edna's home, on the corner of a side street, where Monsieur Ratignolle owned and conducted a drugstore which enjoyed a steady and prosperous trade. His father had been in the business before him, and Monsieur Ratignolle stood well in the community and bore an enviable reputation for integrity and clear-headedness. His family lived in commodious apartments over the store, having an entrance on the side within the Porte Cochere. There was something which Edna thought very French, very foreign, about their whole manner of living. In the large and pleasant salon which extended across the width of the house, the Radignols entertained their friends once a fortnight with a soiree musicale, sometimes diversified by card playing. There was a friend who played upon the cello. One brought his flute and another his violin, while there were some who sang and a number who performed upon the piano with various degrees of taste and agility. The Radignols' soirees musicales were widely known, and it was considered a privilege to be invited to them. Edna found her friend engaged in assorting the clothes which had returned that morning from the laundry. She at once abandoned her occupation upon seeing Edna, who had been ushered without ceremony into her presence. 
Sute can do it as well as I. It really is her business, she explained to Edna, who apologized for interrupting her. And she summoned a young black woman, whom she instructed in French, to be very careful in checking off the list which she handed to her. She told her to notice particularly if a fine linen handkerchief of Monsieur Ratignol's, which was missing last week, had been returned, and to be sure to set to one side such pieces as required mending and darning. Then, placing an arm around Edna's waist, she led her to the front of the house, to the salon, where it was cool and sweet with the odor of great roses that stood upon the hearth in jars. Madame Ratignol looked more beautiful than ever there at home, in a negligee which left her arms almost wholly bare, and exposed the rich, melting curves of her white throat. "'Perhaps I shall be able to paint your picture some day,' said Edna with a smile when they were seated. She produced the roll of sketches and started to unfold them. "'I believe I ought to work again. I feel as if I wanted to be doing something. What do you think of them? Do you think it worthwhile to take it up and study some more? I might study for a while with Laidpore. She knew that Madame Ratignol's opinion in such a matter that would help her to put heart into her venture. "'Your talent is immense, dear.' "'Nonsense,' protested Edna, well-pleased. "'Immense, I tell you,' persisted Madame Ratignol, surveying the sketches one by one at close range, then holding them at arm's length, narrowing her eyes, and dropping her head on one side. "'Surely this Bavarian peasant is worthy of framing, and this basket of apples. Never have I seen anything more lifelike. One might almost be tempted to reach out a hand and take one.' Edna could not control a feeling which bordered upon complacency at her friend's praise, even realizing, as she did, its true worth. She retained a few of the sketches and gave all the rest to Madame Ratignol, who appreciated the gift far beyond its value and proudly exhibited the pictures to her husband when he came up from the store a little later for his midday dinner. Mr. Ratignol was one of those men who were called the salt of the earth. His cheerfulness was unbounded, and it was matched by his goodness of heart, his broad charity, and common sense. He and his wife spoke English with an accent, which was only discernible through its un-English emphasis, and a certain carefulness and deliberation. Edna's husband spoke English with no accent whatsoever. The Ratignols understood each other perfectly, if ever the fusion of two human beings into one has been accomplished on this sphere, it was surely in their union. As Edna seated herself at table with them, she thought, better a dinner of herbs, though it did not take her long to discover that it was no dinner of herbs, but a delicious repast, simple, choice, and in every way satisfying. Monsieur Ratignol was delighted to see her, though he found her looking not so well as at Grand Isle, and he advised a tonic. He talked a good deal on various topics, a little politics, some city news, and neighborhood gossip. He spoke with an animation and earnestness that gave an exaggerated importance to every syllable he uttered. His wife was keenly interested in everything he said, laying down her fork the better to listen, chiming in, taking the words out of his mouth. Edna felt depressed rather than soothed after leaving them. The little glimpse of domestic harmony which had been offered her gave her no regret, no longing. It was not a condition of life which fitted her, and she could see in it but an appalling and hopeless ennui. She was moved by a kind of commiseration for Madame Ratignol, a pity for that colorless existence which never uplifted its possessor beyond the region of blind contentment, in which no moment of anguish ever visited her soul, in which she would never have the taste of life's delirium. Edna vaguely wondered what she meant by life's delirium. It had crossed her thought like some unsought, extraneous impression. 19. Edna could not help but think that it was very foolish, very childish, to have stamped upon her wedding ring and smashed the crystal vase upon the tiles. She was visited by no more outbursts, moving her to such futile expedients. She began to do as she liked and to feel as she liked. She completely abandoned her Tuesdays at home and did not return the visits of those who had called upon her. She made no ineffectual efforts to conduct her household en bonne menagère, going and coming as it suited her fancy, and, so far as she was able, lending herself to any passing caprice. Mr. Pontellier had been a rather courteous husband so long as he met a certain tacit submissiveness in his wife, but her new and unexpected line of conduct completely bewildered him. It shocked him. Then her absolute disregard for her duties as a wife angered him. When Mr. Pontellier became rude, Edna grew insolent. She had resolved never to take another step backward. It seems to me the utmost folly for a woman at the head of a household and the mother of children to spend in an atelier days which would be better employed contriving for the comfort of her family. I feel like painting, answered Edna. Perhaps I shan't always feel like it. 
Then in God's name, paint, but don't let the family go to the devil. There's Madame Ratignolle. Because she keeps up her music, she doesn't let everything else go to chaos. And she's more of a musician than you are a painter. She isn't a musician, and I'm not a painter. It isn't on account of painting that I let things go. On account of what, then? Oh, I don't know. Let me alone. You bother me. It sometimes entered Mr. Pontellier's mind to wonder if his wife were not growing a little unbalanced mentally. He could see plainly that she was not herself. That is, he could not see that she was becoming herself and daily casting aside that fictitious self which we assume like a garment with which to appear before the world. Her husband let her alone as she requested and went away to his office. Edna went up to her atelier, a bright room in the top of the house. She was working with great energy and interest, without accomplishing anything, however, which satisfied her even in the smallest degree. For a time, she had the whole household enrolled in the service of art. The boys posed for her. They thought it amusing at first, but the occupation soon lost its attractiveness when they discovered that it was not a game arranged especially for their entertainment. The quadroon sat for hours before Edna's palette, patient as a savage, while the housemaid took charge of the children and the drawing room went undusted. But the housemaid, too, served her term as model when Edna perceived that the young woman's back and shoulders were molded on classic lines, and that her hair, loosened from its confining cap, became an inspiration. While Edna worked, she sometimes sang low the little air, Ah, si tu savais. It moved her with recollections. She could hear again the ripple of the water, the flapping sail. She could see the glint of the moon upon the bay, and could feel the soft, gusty beating of the hot south wind. A subtle current of desire passed through her body, weakening her hold upon the brushes and making her eyes burn. There were days when she was very happy without knowing why. She was happy to be alive and breathing, when her whole being seemed to be one with the sunlight, the color, the odors, the luxuriant warmth of some perfect southern day. She liked then to wander alone into strange and unfamiliar places. She discovered many a sunny, sleepy corner fashioned to dream in, and she found it good to dream and to be alone and unmolested. There were days when she was unhappy. She did not know why. When it did not seem worthwhile to be glad or sorry, to be alive or dead, when life appeared to her like a grotesque pandemonium and humanity like worms, struggling blindly towards inevitable annihilation, she could not work on such a day, nor weave fancies to stir her pulses and warm her blood. 20. It was during such a mood that Edna hunted up Mademoiselle Reese. She had not forgotten the rather disagreeable impression left upon her by their last interview, but she nevertheless felt a desire to see her, above all to listen while she played upon the piano. Quite early in the afternoon, she started upon her quest for the pianist. Unfortunately, she had mislaid or lost Mademoiselle Reese's card, and looking up her address in the city directory, she found that the woman lived on Bienville Street, some distance away. The directory which fell into her hands was a year or more old, however, and upon reaching the number indicated, Edna discovered that the house was occupied by a respectable family who had chambre garnier to let. They had been living there for six months and knew absolutely nothing of a Mademoiselle Reese. In fact, they knew nothing of any of their neighbors. Their lodgers were all people of the highest distinction, they assured Edna. She did not linger to discuss class distinctions with Madame Papon, but hastened to a neighboring grocery store, feeling sure that Mademoiselle would have left her address with the proprietor. He knew Mademoiselle Reese a good deal better than he wanted to know her, he informed his questioner. In truth, he did not want to know her at all, or anything concerning her. The most disagreeable and unpopular woman who ever lived in Bienville Street. He thanked heaven she had left the neighborhood and was equally thankful that he did not know where she had gone. Edna's desire to see Mademoiselle Reese had increased tenfold since these unlooked-for obstacles had arisen to thwart it. She was wondering who could give her the information she sought, when it suddenly occurred to her that Madame Lebrun would be the one most likely to do so. She knew it was useless to ask Mademoiselle Ragnol, who was on the most distant terms with the musician, and preferred to know nothing concerning her. She had once been almost as empathetic in expressing herself upon the subject as the corner grocer. Edna knew that Madame Lebrun had returned to the city, for it was the middle of November, and she also knew where the Lebruns lived, on Chalter Street. Their home from the outside looked like a prison, with iron bars before the door and lower windows. The iron bars were a relic of the old regime, and no one had ever thought of dislodging them. At the side was a high fence enclosing the garden. A gate or door opening upon the street was locked. 
Edna rang the bell at the side garden gate and stood upon the banquette waiting to be admitted. It was Victor who opened the gate for her. A black woman, wiping her hands upon her apron, was close at his heels. Before she saw them, Edna could hear them in altercation, the woman, plainly an anomaly, claiming the right to be allowed to perform her duties, one of which was to answer the bell. Victor was surprised and delighted to see Mrs. Pontellier, and he made no attempt to conceal either his astonishment or his delight. He was a dark-browed, good-looking youngster of nineteen, greatly resembling his mother, but with ten times her impetuosity. He instructed the black woman to go at once and inform Madame Lebrun that Mrs. Pontellier desired to see her. The woman grumbled a refusal to do part of her duty when she had not been permitted to do it all, and started back to her interrupted task of weeding the garden. Whereupon, Victor administered a rebuke in the form of a volley of abuse which, owing to its rapidity and incoherence, was all but incomprehensible to Edna. Whatever it was, the rebuke was convincing, for the woman dropped her hoe and went mumbling into the house. Edna did not wish to enter. It was very pleasant there on the side porch, where there were chairs, a wicker lounge, and a small table. She seated herself, for she was tired from her long tramp, and she began to rock gently and smooth out the folds of her silk parasol. Victor drew up his chair beside her. He at once explained that the black woman's offensive conduct was all due to imperfect training, as he was not there to take her in hand. He'd only come up from the island the morning before and expected to return the next day. He stayed all winter at the island. He lived there and kept the place in order and got things ready for the summer visitors. But a man needed occasional relaxation, he informed Mrs. Pontellier, and every now and again he drummed up a pretext to bring him to the city. My, but he had had a time of it the evening before. He wouldn't want his mother to know, and he began to talk in a whisper. He was sentient with recollections. Of course, he couldn't think of telling Mrs. Pontellier all about it, she being a woman and not comprehending such things. But it all began with a girl peeping and smiling at him through the shutters as he passed by. Oh, but she was a beauty. Certainly he smiled back and went up and talked to her. Mrs. Pontellier did not know if she supposed he was one to let an opportunity like that escape him. Despite herself, the youngster amused her. She must have betrayed in her look some degree of interest or entertainment. The boy grew more daring, and Mrs. Pontellier might have found herself, in a little while, listening to a highly colored story, but for the timely appearance of Madame Lebrun. That lady was still clad in white, according to her custom of the summer. Her eyes beamed an effusive welcome. Would not Mrs. Pontellier go inside? Would she partake of some refreshment? Why had she not been there before? How was that dear Mr. Pontellier, and how were those sweet children? Had Mrs. Pontellier ever known such a warm November? Victor Winton reclined on the wicker lounge behind his mother's chair, where he commanded a view of Edna's face. He had taken her parasol from her hands while he spoke to her, and he now lifted it and twirled it above him as he lay on his back. When Madame Lebrun complained that it was so dull coming back to the city, that she saw so few people now, that even Victor, when he came up from the island for a day or two, had so much to occupy him and engage his time, then it was that the youth went into contortions on the lounge and winked mischievously at Edna. She somehow felt like a confederate in crime, and tried to look severe and disapproving. There had been but two letters from Robert, with little in them, they told her. Victor said it was really not worthwhile to go inside for the letters, when his mother entreated him to go in search of them. He remembered the contents, which in truth he rattled off very glibly when put to the test. One letter was written from Veracruz, and the other from the city of Mexico. He had met Montel, who was doing everything towards his advancement. So far, the financial situation was no improvement over the one he had left in New Orleans, but of course the prospects were vastly better. He wrote of the city of Mexico, the buildings, the people, and their habits, the condition of life which he found there. He sent his love to the family. He enclosed a check to his mother and hoped she would affectionately remember him to all his friends. That was the substance of the two letters. Edna felt that if there had been a message for her, she would have received it. The despondent frame of mind in which she had left home began again to overtake her, and she remembered that she wished to find Mademoiselle Rees. Madame Lebrun knew where Mademoiselle Rees lived. She gave Edna the address, regretting that she would not consent to stay and spend the remainder of the afternoon, and pay a visit to Mademoiselle Rees some other day. The afternoon was already well advanced. Victor escorted her out upon the banquette, lifted her parasol, and held it over her while he walked to the car with her. He entreated her to bear in mind that the disclosures of the afternoon were strictly confidential. 
She laughed and bantered him a little, remembering too late that she should have been dignified and reserved. How handsome Mrs. Pontellier looked, said Madame Lebrun to her son. Ravishing, he admitted. The city atmosphere has improved her. Some way she doesn't seem like the same woman. 21. Some people contended that the reason Mademoiselle Reese always chose apartments up under a roof was to discourage the approach of beggars, peddlers, and callers. There were plenty of windows in her little front room. They were for the most part dingy, but as they were nearly always open, it did not make so much difference. They often admitted into the room a good deal of smoke and soot, but at the same time all the light and air that there was came through them. From her windows could be seen the crescent of the river, the masts of ships, and the big chimneys of the Mississippi steamers. A magnificent piano crowded the apartment. In the next room she slept, and in the third and last she harbored a gasoline stove on which she cooked her meals when disinclined to descend to the neighboring restaurant. It was there also that she ate, keeping her belongings in a rare old buffet, dingy and battered from a hundred years of use. When Edna knocked at Mademoiselle Reese's front room door and entered, she discovered that person standing beside the window, engaged in mending or patching an old prunella gator. The little musician laughed all over when she saw Edna. Her laugh consisted of a contortion of the face and all the muscles of the body. She seemed strikingly homely, standing there in the afternoon light. She still wore the shabby lace and the artificial bunch of violets on the side of her head. She remembered me at last, said Mademoiselle. I have said to myself, ah, bah, she will never come. Did you want me to come? asked Edna with a smile. I had not thought much about it, answered Mademoiselle. The two had seated themselves on a little bumpy sofa which stood against the wall. I am glad, however, that you came. I have the water boiling back there and was just about to make some coffee. You will drink a cup with me. And how is La Belle Dame? Always handsome, always healthy, always contented. She took Edna's hand between her strong, wiry fingers, holding it loosely without warmth, and executing a sort of double theme upon the back and palm. Yes, she went on, I sometimes thought, she will never come. She promised us those women in society always do, without meaning it. She will not come. For I really don't believe you like me, Mrs. Pontellier. I don't know whether I like you or not, replied Edna, gazing down at the little woman with a quizzical look. The candor of Mrs. Pontellier's admission greatly pleased Mademoiselle Reese. She expressed her gratification by repairing forthwith to the region of the gasoline stove and rewarding her guest with the promised cup of coffee. The coffee and the biscuit accompanying it proved very acceptable to Edna, who had declined refreshment at Madame Lebrun's and was now beginning to feel hungry. Mademoiselle set the tray which she brought in upon a small table near at hand and seated herself once again on the lumpy sofa. I've had a letter from your friend, she remarked as she poured a little cream into Edna's cup and handed it to her. My friend? Yes, your friend Robert. He wrote to me from the city of Mexico. Wrote to you, repeated Edna in amazement, stirring her coffee absently. Yes, to me. Why not? Don't stir all the warmth out of your coffee. Drink it though the letter might as well have been sent to you. It was nothing but Mrs. Pontellier from beginning to end. Let me see it, requested the young woman entreatingly. No, a letter concerns no one but the person who writes it and the one to whom it is written. Haven't you just said it concerned me from beginning to end? It was written about you, not to you. Have you seen Mrs. Pontellier? How is she looking? He asks, as Mrs. Pontellier says, or as Mrs. Pontellier once said, if Mrs. Pontellier should call upon you, play for her that impromptu of Champagne's, my favorite. I heard it here a day or two ago, but not as you play it. I should like to know how it affects her, and so on, as if he supposed we were constantly in each other's society. Let me see the letter. Oh, no. Have you answered it? No. Let me see the letter. No, and again, no. Then play the impromptu for me. It is growing late. What time do you have to be home? Time doesn't concern me. Your question seems a little rude. Play the impromptu. For you have told me nothing of yourself. What are you doing? Painting, laughed Edna. I am becoming an artist. Think of it. Ah, an artist. You have pretensions, madame. Why pretensions? Do you think I could not become an artist? I do not know you well enough to say. I do not know your talent or your temperament. To be an artist includes much. One must possess many gifts, absolute gifts, which have not been acquired by one's own effort. And moreover, to succeed, the artist must possess the courageous soul. What do you mean by the courageous soul? Courageous, ma foi, the brave soul, the soul that dares and defies. 
Show me the letter and play for me the impromptu. You see that I have persistence. Does that quality count for anything in art? It counts with the foolish old woman whom you have captivated, replied Mademoiselle with her wriggling laugh. The letter was right there at hand in the drawer of the little table upon which Edna had just placed her coffee cup. Mademoiselle opened the drawer and drew forth the letter, the topmost one. She placed it in Edna's hands, and without further comment arose and went to the piano. Mademoiselle played a soft interlude. It was an improvisation. She sat low at the instrument, and the lines of her body settled into ungraceful curves and angles that gave it an appearance of deformity. Gradually and imperceptibly, the interlude melted into the soft opening minor chords of the Chopin impromptu. Edna did not know when the impromptu began or ended. She sat in the sofa corner reading Robert's letter by the fading light. Mademoiselle had glided from the Chopin into the quivering love notes of Isolde's song, and back again to the impromptu with its soulful and poignant longing. The shadows deepened in the little room. The music grew strange and fantastic, turbulent, insistent, plaintive, and soft with entreaty. The shadows grew deep. The music filled the room. It floated out upon the night, over the housetops, the crescent of the river, losing itself in the silence of the upper air. Edna was sobbing, just as she had wept one midnight at Grand Isle when strange new voices awoke in her. She arose in some agitation to take her departure. "'May I come again, mademoiselle?' she asked at the threshold. "'Come whenever you feel like it. Be careful. The stairs and landings are dark. Don't stumble.' Mademoiselle re-entered and lit a candle. Robert's letter was on the floor. She stooped and picked it up. It was crumpled and damp with tears. Mademoiselle smoothed the letter out, restored it to the envelope, and replaced it in the table drawer. The old gentleman lifted his shaggy eyebrows, protruded his thick nether lip, and tapped the arm of his chair with his cushioned fingertips. "'What have you been doing to her, Pontellier?' "'Doing? Parbleu!' "'Has she,' asked the doctor with a smile, "'has she been associating of late with a circle of pseudo-intellectual women, super-spiritual superior beings? My wife has been telling me about them.' "'That's the trouble,' broke in Mr. Pontellier. "'She hasn't been associating with anyone. She has abandoned her Tuesdays at home, has thrown over all her acquaintances, and goes tramping about by herself, moping in the streetcars, getting in after dark.' I tell you she's peculiar. I don't like it. I feel a little worried over it. 22. One morning, on his way into town, Mr. Pontellier stopped at the house of his old friend and family physician, Dr. Mandela. The doctor was a semi-retired physician, resting, as the saying is, upon his laurels. He bore a reputation for wisdom rather than skill, leaving the active practice of medicine to his assistants and younger contemporaries, and was much sought for in matters of consultation. A few families, united to him by bonds of friendship, he still attended when they required the services of a physician. Pontelliers were among these. Mr. Pontellier found the doctor reading at the open window of his study. His house stood rather far back from the street, in the center of a delightful garden, so that it was quiet and peaceful at the old gentleman's study window. He was a great reader. He stared up disapprovingly over his eyeglasses as Mr. Pontellier entered, wondering who had the temerity to disturb him at that hour of the morning. Ah, Pontellier, not sick, I hope. Come and have a seat. What news do you bring this morning? He was quite portly, with a profusion of gray hair and small blue eyes, which age had robbed of much of their brightness, but none of their penetration. Oh, I'm never sick, doctor. You know that I come of tough fiber, of that old Creole race of Pontelliers that dry up and finally blow away. I came to consult. No, not precisely to consult. To talk to you about Edna. I don't know what ails her. Madame Pontellier not well, marveled the doctor. Why, I saw her, I think it was a week ago, walking along Canal Street, the picture of health it seemed to me. Yes, yes, she seems quite well, said Mr. Pontellier, leaning forward and whirling a stick between his two hands. But she doesn't act well. She's odd. Who's not like herself? I can't make her out, and I thought perhaps you'd help me. How does she act? inquired the doctor. Well, it isn't easy to explain, said Mr. Pontellier, throwing himself back in his chair. She lets the housekeeping go to the dickens. Well, well, women are not all alike, my dear Pontellier. We've got to consider. I know that. I told you I couldn't explain. Her whole attitude, toward me and everybody and everything, has changed. You know I have a quick temper, but I don't want to quarrel or be rude to a woman, especially my wife. 
yet I'm driven to it, and feel like 10,000 devils after I've made a fool of myself. She's making it devilishly uncomfortable for me, he went on nervously. She's got some sort of notion in her head concerning the eternal rights of women. And, you understand, we meet in the morning at the breakfast table. This was a new aspect for the doctor. Nothing hereditary, he asked seriously. Nothing peculiar about her family antecedents, is there? Oh, no, indeed. She comes of sound old Presbyterian Kentucky stock. The old gentleman, her father, I have heard, used to atone for his weekday sins with his Sunday devotions. I know for a fact that his racehorses literally ran away with the prettiest bit of Kentucky farming land I ever laid eyes upon. Margaret, you know Margaret. She has all the Presbyterianism undiluted, and the youngest is something of a vixen. By the way, she gets married in a couple of weeks from now. Send your wife up to the wedding, exclaimed the doctor, foreseeing a happy solution. Let her stay among her own people for a while. It will do her good. That's what I want her to do. She won't go to the marriage. She says a wedding is one of the most lamentable spectacles on earth. Nice thing for a woman to say to her husband, exclaimed Mr. Pontellier, fuming anew at the recollection. Pontellier, said the doctor, after a moment's reflection. Let your wife alone for a while. Don't bother her, and don't let her bother you. Woman, my dear friend, is a very peculiar and delicate organism. A sensitive and highly organized woman, such as I know Mrs. Pontellier to be, is especially peculiar. It would require an inspired psychologist to deal successfully with them. And when ordinary fellows like you and me attempt to cope with their idiosyncrasies, the result is bungling. Most women are moody and whimsical. This is some passing whim of your wife due to some cause or causes, which you and I needn't try to fathom. But it will pass happily over, especially if you let her alone. Send her around to see me. Oh, I couldn't do that. There'd be no reason for it, objected Mr. Pontellier. Then I'll go around and see her, said the doctor. I'll drop in to dinner some evening on Bonamy. Do, by all means, urged Mr. Pontellier. What evening will you come? Say Thursday. Will you come Thursday? He asked, rising to take his leave. Very well, Thursday. My wife may possibly have some engagement for me on Thursday. In case she has, I shall let you know. Otherwise, you may expect me. Mr. Pontellier turned before leaving to say, I'm going to New York on business very soon. I have a big scheme on hand and want to be on the field proper to pull the ropes and handle the ribbons. We'll let you in on the inside if you say so, doctor, he laughed. No, I thank you, my dear sir, returned the doctor. I leave such ventures to you younger men with the fever of life still in your blood. What I wanted to say, continued Mr. Pontellier with his hand on the knob, I may have to be absent a good while. Would you advise me to take Edna along? By all means, if she wishes to go. If not, leave her here. Don't contradict her. The mood will pass, I assure you. It may take a month, two, three months, possibly longer, but it will pass. Have patience. Well, goodbye, ajadis, said Mr. Pontellier as he let himself out. The doctor would have liked, during the course of conversation, to ask, is there any man in the case? But he knew his creole too well to make such a blunder as that. He did not resume his book immediately, but sat for a while meditatively looking out into the garden. Okay, before we get started talking about these chapters, I just wanted to give you guys a reminder of how I'm able to make this podcast a reality. Okay, so in these chapters, we do get to see um, how Edna's newfound kind of attitude or outlook towards life is impacting her relationship. Uh, Towards the end, we see Mr. Pontellier going to the doctor, trying to get some insight into what's wrong with his wife. Um, And his doctor gives him probably the best advice, I think, that he could have been given, which is to just leave her alone. (laughs) Let her her deal with whatever is going on. Uh, Stop irritating her. Stop making things worse. Just leave her alone. It'll pass. Women are like that. You know, all of those those sayings that uh, were very common at the time back then. Um, We also see her kind of wanting to be friends with the people from the island and it's it kind of works out um she goes to see mademoiselle reef but really only to to kind of uh, get get away and she ends up being reminded of robert 
reading this long letter about herself after Madame Lebrun's letter did not mention her at all and she was really upset. So she's been going kind of through a roller coaster of emotions um, in the space of a few hours. She thought that Robert did not remember her at all to Robert writing other people about her, um, listening to the piano, which made her emotional over the summer. So she has a lot going on in her life right now. <laughs> And I don't think she knows how to handle it. I don't think she, she has any idea how to kind of control her emotions or kind of handle what's going on in her head uh, because she never really had to do it before. So this is all new to her. And I'm, I'm worried that she's on, on a straight course for a mental break. I'm concerned that things are not going to improve for her. Um, things are only going to get more difficult, more confusing, and more of a struggle for her to handle, so we'll see what ends up happening to, to Edna. We'll see what ends up going on, if things get better, if things get worse. Um, we'll just have to, have to wait and see, but in these chapters we get to see how things are starting to go back downhill at an even faster rate. <laughs> listening. This has been chapters 18 through 22 of The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Tune in on Thursday for chapters 23 through 26.